Good evening, church. It's good to see each of you here, and I can see each of you. So it is good to see you, and we're going to do some things a little differently tonight. Um, for some time, I have felt that there would be some value in using our um, some, some time frame in the life of the church to talk about some things that we don't talk about at any other time. And for this uh, summer period, for June and July at least, maybe in the early August, um, I would like to spend a little time talking about who we are and where we came from. Uh, sometimes you, may, you might be a person who has an interest in history and you know all about where we came from as Southern Baptists. But others of you may be relatively new to Baptist life and you may not have a clue. Some of you may have grown up in Baptist life and you still don't have a clue. And uh, you, know, you know what you've experienced, but why do we do the things we do? Why do we meet when we do? Why do we have Wednesday night services? Why do we have Sunday night services? Um, why are thousands of people going to go to Dallas in a few days, not this coming week, but in the following week, to have an annual meeting of Southern Baptists? They move around the country, and uh, several thousand preachers and their families and lay leaders will gather and listen to preachers and conduct business. It is the largest democratic, truly democratic assembly in the world when they gather every summer. Why do Southern Baptists do that? Why do we go through that exercise? And so I would like us to take some time to, to consider that. And I'd like to set it up in this way. We have been studying on Sunday morning, not today, but in the previous weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the importance of new wineskins, being responsive to his, the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit as he leads us and directs us in our lives. We talked about life in the Spirit, and, and then we talked about what it means to walk in the Spirit. And what we see when you look back over church history is you see, if you look between the lines, you see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit at work. You may look at some periods of, of history and you say, boy, it just seems that the church was dead, uh, the preaching was dead, the people were dead, they just hadn't died yet. And, um, and God wasn't doing anything. Well, yes, that's possibly true as far as what you're reading, but that may not be the whole story. Uh, I find that oftentimes when the Holy Spirit is most at work, people write the, the least amount of information down about it. They're too busy doing what, being a part of what God is doing. And so there are many things that have happened in church history that have not been written, that have not been written down. But the things that we have, we can catch glimpses of the hand of God at work. And so one of the reasons I value church history is not for all the facts and the dates and, and the names and, and the decisions that were made, but, but one of the things that has fascinated me as is, is I read it, can I trace something of the hand of God in the hearts and souls of men and women over time? He said that when he's building his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we ought to see evidence of that when we study church history. You know, after uh, Jesus ascended into heaven, we have the earliest record of the church found, and we find it where? In the book of what? Acts. We find the early history of the church. And then we catch snippets of history in the letters of Paul and John in, in the New Testament. We catch little pieces of history. But after the book of Revelation, which was written about A.D. 90, 
uh, the New Testament is closed, and we don't have anything that we call inspired history or inspired, an inspired book of the Bible. We just have church history. And what you need to know is that the church grew dramatically uh, through the end of the first century, through the second century, through the third century, just exploded all the way up to about 312 A.D. when uh, Constantine, the emperor, legalized Christianity, made it the state religion, which is probably a disaster for the church, you know, in the long run. But it does demonstrate how much influence that Christians had in, uh, in an environment where they had been heavily persecuted and uh, oppressed. So, within the space of 200 years, the church exploded. But then some things began creeping in. Uh, the life of the Spirit began to be less and less on the front seat and moved to the back seat. In fact, life in the Spirit was something that you might find in individual testimonies, in individual lives, but was not something that was at the forefront of what the church. You start reading about church councils, and you start reading about um, the dark ages or the dark period of the church, and you have people who are leading the church who seem to be very carnal in the way they go about things, very much into money, very much into power, very much into politics. And you had popes that were calling the shots for emperors and telling people what to do and pulling the strings behind the scenes. And at some point along the way, you would expect that there would be uh, an outflow or, a, or an explosion of the Holy Spirit at some point. Well, more than likely, uh, we have something of that happening on a grand scale during what is called the Reformation. And in the early 16th century, early 1500s, and actually for 100 or so years before that, you had men and women who were preaching the gospel as we preach the gospel, teaching the truth about God's word as we teach the truth about God's word. Uh, whereas before the church had kind of kept people ignorant of the Bible, you had a whole generation, succession of generations that were translating the Bible into the language of the common man and woman so that anyone could read it for themselves. And by the time you get to particularly England in the early 17th century, 1600s, you have a lot of people who have been part of the Anglican church, which had been part of the Catholic church. And they had been through all the ceremonies and the rituals and all their services were in Latin and they couldn't understand anything unless they knew Latin, uh, suddenly were given Bibles that they could read for themselves. And even within the Church of England, you had pastors, preachers, teachers, they were called Puritans, who began taking the Scripture and teaching it what it says. And people were coming alive. People were just coming alive spiritually. And, and there was this great movement towards the Lord, towards his word, towards trying to understand what pleases him, and we want to be all about pleasing him. The whole concept of the word Puritan is that they looked at the church that they were dealing with and they said, well, we don't find that in the Bible, we don't find that in the Bible, we don't find that in the Bible, and so we need to purify the church of this stuff. And so they were called Puritans because they were trying to take what they read in the Bible and make it a part of their, their daily experience, their daily life. If you read the devotional literature from that period, it is absolutely amazing the perception of God that they had. They had such a sense of awe of him and a sense of worship. It was just embedded in their, in their thinking 
a typical, typical sermon would be two and three and four hours long. You think I preach a while, get loose once in a while. But, but they, they preached for a long time. People, people had, they didn't just have their favorite pew, they owned the pew. Because <laughs> it was part of where they lived their life. <laughs> they, they lived there a long time, and so they, they had their seat. Um, before they were legal, the Puritans would uh, meet in homes. And they had preach-offs, I call them. They would prophesy. They would, they would take the Bible and teach it, teach it, teach it. And then another person would stand up and teach it, teach it, teach it. And somebody else would stand up and teach it, teach it, teach it. For the most part, the Puritans said, though, it's not right for us to leave the Church of England. But there were others that said, forget the Church of England. And they were called separatists. The pilgrims that settled at Plymouth Rock were separatists in England, all this experimentation, all of this thinking about what is church, when that was going on in England, you, you had the first appearance of Baptists. People who were saying, you know, this infant baptism thing, we're not sure that that's right. We know that unless a person's born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. They believed in the new birth. The Puritans believed it too. But they baptized babies. They kept the Church of England thing going. And so there were these first Baptists in 1630. The first Baptist church in London was, was founded. And, and you had all of these different experiments. Well, we see the Bible teaching this, so let's try this in our church. The Bible teaches this, so let's try this in our church. And they were just experimenting. All, and all of that experimentation, all that thinking came to the American colonies, except the Puritans wanted to keep control. And so if somebody began teaching like Ann Hutchinson did about following the Holy Spirit, just doing what the Holy Spirit tells you to do, or the Quakers saying you just got to follow the inner light that the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, they just oppressed and, and um, persecuted those people. They were heretics. Hang them, burn them, bury them, drown them, whatever. So uh, Puritans, there's a dark side and a, and a, and a light side. Well, it, after you get past the 1600s, uh, Baptists at this point are, from my vantage point, are dead. There are a few exceptions, a few individuals who seem to have spiritual life. But for the most part, they are, if you just talk to them, they're talking about heavy doctrines of election and predestination and Calvinism, and, and it was so much in their thinking that, that evangelism was never on the radar screen. Missions was never on the radar screen. And so nothing really was happening. In all of New England, there were just a handful of Baptist churches. Um, they were important, they were significant, but there was just a few of them. Enter the 1700s or the 18th century. I want to uh, take you for the next few minutes in a whirlwind tool tour of about 100 years. And I want you to think about why this is significant. Because who we are today, we would not be sitting here, sitting in this church, even having this conversation, if what I'm about to share with you had not taken place. I promise you that's the case. Baptists, as we know ourselves today, would not have existed if these events had not occurred. 
And so what I'm going to describe to you is vitally important to who we are today. So I'm calling this Baptist Awaken, the Impact of 18th Century Revivals. And those of you who know me know I love history, but I have more than just an academic uh, objective tonight. So let me give you, first of all, the background. And I hope they're keeping up. Go ahead and the next one. Background. There we go. Uh, I want to talk about a couple things in terms of background in this early period. There was a general decline of religion taking place in the early 1700s. Now, when was, when was our country, uh, when did we declare independence? What year? Okay, so this is about 75 years before that. At the opening of the 1700s, religion is not so hot in our country, uh, in the colonies. There are unique problems on the frontier. Uh, does anybody know what the frontier was back then? Where was the frontier? The colonies were all on the coast, so where was the frontier? You know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, um, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, it didn't exist yet, but the western part of Virginia, all those areas, that was the frontier. And uh, very few people were going over there, but the frontier was in unstable. There was a period of about, there were four different wars that took place from 1688 to 1763, that involved the Great Britain and France. They were fighting in Europe, but that, that same battle took place in the frontier region, so it was really unstable. Uh, there was lawlessness. Um, a lot of people didn't even know what church was, didn't go to church in those regions. The parish system broke down. It's hard for you and I to relate to that, but if you, belonged, you lived in a certain geographical region, you belonged to that church, and there was no other church you could belong to. That whole system was breaking down. Um, the, uh, they, they had uh, state-sponsored religion in uh, New England, especially in Massachusetts. And so the Congregational Church was the state-sponsored church. They enforced certain rules. Everybody had to pay taxes that benefited that church. Um, later on, in the southern colonies and places like the Carolinas, you paid taxes to help support the Anglican Church, even though you weren't a member of the Anglican Church. Well, that kind of stuff was breaking down. There was a shortage of ministers, um, and more persons that were coming over were immigrating for secular purposes. I want to get rich, I want to make money, and not necessarily for religious purposes. Um, the second thing that was going on this, this was, was a decline of religion in New England. And when the Puritans came, in order to be a full-blown Puritan, you were baptized as a baby. They believed that if you were the elect chosen of God, then you were saved, but you still had to have a born-again testimony, born-again experience. But you would be baptized as a baby because they believed the children of God's chosen were automatically part of God's chosen. And so they baptized babies. We don't agree with that. We don't do that here. We don't baptize babies. Now, there have been some pretty young I wondered about in the baptistry, but they weren't infant baptisms. That's humor. Um, so, so the uh, Puritans were still concerned with, in the early days, 1630s, 1640s, even 1650s, with people who were devoted to Jesus, who had had a born-again experience. And so they said that if you were baptized as a baby, then at some point, the, the promises that your godparents made when you were baptized, I will follow Jesus, I will support the church, whatever, that you had to make those promises yourself. In the Catholic Church, if some of you are familiar with that tradition, they have confirmations. You're baptized as a baby, but you have to own those 
commitments of your godparents yourself at some point. Confirmation. Well, what was happening is that more and more of those people baptized as babies were not coming forward all the way and making their commitment to Christ. They weren't doing it. And so that created a problem. So they, they were considered halfway church members, not all the way. We have some of that sometimes in wind, don't we, Mike? <laughs> um, somebody will come forward, but they won't take the new member class or, or whatever. So, um, but they, they had this halfway covenant. The infants were brought into the church through baptism. They couldn't vote, couldn't take communion until they owned those vows for themselves. And so they were considered halfway church members. Next slide. So the children were baptized into this state church society. You could not vote. Um, you couldn't own land. There were a lot of things you couldn't do if you weren't a member of the church. Well, they were only halfway members of the church. These adults never affirmed their baptism vows, and they remained halfway members. And so here's the problem. If I was baptized as a baby and I never entered into full church membership, never could say I was born again, never could say that I'm making the promises made for me as a baby. And then I have children. Can my children be baptized? I was automatically baptized because my parents were full church members. But now I'm only halfway a church member and I have children. Can they be considered part of the church? Can they be baptized and then grow up? I mean, it gets complicated when you do these things that really aren't found in the Bible. And so, in 1662, they came up with a, a deal called the Halfway Covenant that stated that children of halfway church members could become baptized church members. Well, as you can imagine, by opening that door, that soon you had a lot of people in church who didn't have a clue what it meant to walk with God. Uh, they were, theologically, we call them unregenerate. They had never been regenerated or born again. And the church was full of them. So eventually, the, uh, the unsaved church members outnumbered the full church members, and they just voted to change everything. Uh, the congregational church then became secularized. Later generations could hardly ever describe a personal relationship with God. And the church became, for all intents and purposes, spiritually dead. Congregational church. Now, into this environment, there are four names that you need to, to hear that came into this world. You've got a world of people confused about who God is, confused about how to have a relationship with him. The first name is a man named Solomon Stoddard, the dawning of the Great Awakening. Solomon Stoddard pastored the first church of Northampton, Massachusetts from 1669 to 1729. Um, preachers read their sermons. Preachers were very formal. They tended to be the most educated people in the community. Stoddard kind of broke the mold. He wasn't concerned about style. He said, we are not sent into the pulpit to show our wit and eloquence, but to set the consciences of men on fire. Now, that was radical. That was really a different mindset. The other thing he did was he actually evangelized people. He'd go to their house, have a cup of tea with them, and share the gospel, and help them come to be saved. 
and nobody was doing that. Stoddard was one of the first that we know was doing that. Second name, Theodore Freilingheisen. Freilingheisen. Theodore Freilingheisen. Lived from 1691 to 1747. He's not a congregational minister. He's Dutch Reformed. He's from New Jersey. Four characteristics that made him unique. He preached emotional sermons. He got excited when he preached. He put some passion into it. He prayed free prayers. What, what do you imagine a free prayer is? You don't charge for it. I'm sure it means that. But it means more than that. What do you think a free prayer is? Wasn't pre-written. Wasn't a formal prayer. It wasn't liturgy. It wasn't written out. He was just reading something off a page. He was saying, God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. I love you too. I mean, he just prayed free prayers. He practiced church discipline. Now, we don't know a whole lot about church discipline in our generation, but he actually told people, you can't have the Lord's Supper because I've seen the way you've been living. And people got mad. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and number four, he aimed at the conversion of sinners. Now, we think, What's it, what do we pay that guy to do? But, but he was actually doing that. He was actually trying to help people come to know Jesus and get saved. So he's a second guy who's concerned about evangelism. A third name is Tennant, but there's actually four men involved. There's a daddy and three sons. A William Tennant and his sons Gilbert, John, and William Jr. They started a log college for ministers. Um, you ever hear of Rutgers? Well, it started out as a log college for ministers in Pennsylvania. And this college turned out Presbyterian ministers for uh, the frontier for the middle colonies and when revival did come in about 1740 there were all these men trained to share the gospel to teach the bible that they were they were turning out gilbert Tennant uh, was particularly influenced by frailing heisen and worked with whitfield who i'm going to talk about in just a moment he preached conviction of sin that one must know oneself as a sinful creature separated from god and rightfully subject to condemnation before one can apprehend and receive forgiveness and acceptance. Doesn't sound radical to us. It was then. And so um, it's not enough to just say, yeah, I trust Jesus, sign me up, I want to be baptized. No. He said, has the Holy Spirit convinced you that you're a sinner? And that you know you need Christ? And he really looked for the activity of the Holy Spirit. And the fourth name you need to know is Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, another Congregationalist minister. He was the grandson of Solomon Stoddard. They co-pastored for a while before the grandfather stepped aside and he became the pastor of the first Congregational Church in Northampton. When he first went there, the, particularly the young adults, the youth, he felt were spiritually dead. They were in trouble. They were running around at night. They were up to no good. And so he began praying for them. And in the winter, 1734 to 1735, about 600 of them were saved. And that church didn't even have 600 people in it when he started. And so this was something unheard of. He turned around and wrote a book. The book was called A Faithful Narrative of a Surprising Work of God. Go ahead. Next one. And he talked about the conversions of people 
and how the Holy Spirit gripped the hearts of people and they felt conviction. And it wasn't just an idea in their head. It was something that was happening at the heart level when they trusted Jesus and they were saved. And so he wrote an account of what took place. People came from all over New England to meet with him in Northampton, and he was sharing with them how the Spirit of God had done a mighty work. Uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield over in England read it. Um, Edward's most famous sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Did any of you have to read that in school? Yeah, you know, English teachers like to grab that one and get you to read it. Um, he literally read that in a monotone voice. He had not hooked up with Frailing Heisen and the others about putting some emotion in your preaching. He read it in a monotone. He read it because he didn't want to interfere with what the Holy Spirit was doing. That was his rationale. And he read the sermon, and he said things like, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider over the fire, abhors you. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God. You know, we talked about wrath this morning. And so people were gripping the pews. They were grabbing hold of the pews. And they were going, ah! They were screaming. And he's trying to read the sermon. And he says, y'all stop that. I'm not through with my sermon." And uh, he tried to quiet them down, and, um, and they were crying. It was disruptive. Edwards, in 1735, was paving the way for a man named George Whitfield, who would come in 1739. Uh, George Whitfield was um, converted by Charles Wesley. Now, John Wesley and Charles Wesley were brothers. Charles wrote a lot of hymns that you'll be familiar with. John is considered the founder of Methodism. Both of those men were operating inside the Anglican or the church or the Church of England. They didn't want to break out and start a church called the Methodist Church. But they were forced out. And so they started what became Methodism. George Whitfield was part of their, their group. They were all friends. Uh, Charles was the one ultimately that led Whitfield to Christ. It's a great story. Don't have the time to tell it. Whitfield and Wesley couldn't be more different. They were friends, but they were theologically they were very different. Whitfield was a strong Calvinist who put emphasis on the sovereignty of God in salvation, that it's more of what God does than what you do that is responsible for your salvation. Wesley put more emphasis on our choice, on free will, than on God's sovereignty. And, uh, and yet the two men were friends until their death, and they were, they were close friends. They just disagreed. Um, in England, Whitfield, when he began to preach, they would not let him preach in the church. If I was an Anglican pastor, why do I want a popular preacher preaching in my church? And so he had to go out in the fields, and he began preaching outside. And thousands of people would come to hear him speak. In 1739, he came to the colonies in America, preached in New York and Philadelphia. He was befriended by Ben Franklin, uh, who was a deist. He was not a Christian. Ben Franklin loved, though, hearing Whitfield preach. He said he would walk for miles 
and empty out everything that was in his pockets just to hear Whitfield say Mesopotamia. <laughs> and uh, you can hear Franklin's humor in that. Uh, during that first preaching tour at 73 days, he rode 800 miles. He preached 130 sermons. His last sermon, 23,000 people came to hear him preach, and they all heard him. He made five tours to the American colonies. On the fifth one, he died. George Whitfield was known for his extemporaneous dramatic sermons. Extemporaneous means he didn't read them. And they were dramatic. There was passion. There was emotion. He was critical of American preachers. He said the churches were dead because dead preachers preached to them. How popular do you think he was with the preachers? Before loudspeakers were in use, his voice could be heard by up to 30,000 people. That'd be like standing in a football stadium without a microphone and preaching. Well, there was criticism and there, of this, what was called the First Great Awakening. And by the way, secular historians, non-Christian historians, look at what happened during Whitfield's ministry and Wesley's ministry from 1740 to 1760 and would say to you, that the American Revolution would not have happened had it not been for the First Great Awakening. They tie the two together. The emphasis on personal decision, the emphasis on personal choice, uh, affected as many as 20% of the population of the colonies during that, that period of time. Can you imagine today what would have happened if 20% of the American population showed up at church? I mean, that's what happened. 20% were converted and came to Christ. Well, in this criticism, some people opposed the emotional responses. They were called old lights. That was the nickname for them, old lights. And every denomination in the colonies had old lights and new lights, old side, new side. They had different terms for them. But as you can imagine, the old lights were against it. Remember the old wineskins and new wineskins? Pharisees were against it. These people were against it. One of the most popular guys in his own mind, that was against it was Charles Chauncey from Boston. His nickname was Old Brick. And uh, Chauncey said to Whitfield one time, sorry to see you back. Whitfield replied, so is the devil. <laughs> so you can see how they handled one another. Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Baptists divided into old lights and new lights. The old lights were anti-revival. Um, the Congregationalists continued with the halfway covenant. Ultimately, many of them wound up being Unitarian or Universalist. Unitarian means you deny the Trinity. There's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just one God. We all worship the same God, Unitarian. Universalism says there's no such thing as hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Universalism. And many of the Congregationalists fell into that very liberal, non-biblical way of thinking. The Old Light Baptists took the name Regular Baptists. They were very Calvinistic. They were opposed to emotion. They were opposed to um, what they saw taking place in this revival. Regular Baptists. Remember that word. Uh, the New Lights, in contrast to all of that, they were all about the revival. Uh, the Congregationalists who had rejected the uh, Halfway Covenant, they required external evidence of conversion. Can you tell me that you were saved? Can you tell me how you were saved? Can you tell me when you were saved? What day? What time? When did you trust Jesus? 
Can you talk to me about the progression the Holy Spirit took you through as he moved you from darkness to light? I mean, that, those were the kinds of things they would do. They became known as strict or separate congregations. Now, what do you imagine that was happening between the old lights and the new lights? You think they stayed in the same church buildings? Mm-mm. The separates went out. They started new churches. And so you had old light congregationalists and you had new light congregationalists. You had old light Baptists or regular Baptists and then you had separate Baptists. That's what they were called and they were the new lights. Evidence of conversion was believer's baptism for many people. That if I trusted Jesus, I follow him in baptism. So many of those congregationalists, guess what happened? They just went all the way. They said, you know, if I continued trusting in my infant baptism, I would have died without Jesus. And so we're rejecting that. We think you have to be old enough to know what you're doing. And so they practice believer's baptism, which means only people who are believing for themselves can be baptized. And so many of those new light congregationalists became separate Baptists in places like Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New England. Now there were Baptists who had been there for 100 years. This was a whole new kind of Baptist, the separate Baptists. They weren't the regular old Calvinistic Baptists. They were a brand new kind of Baptist. They were on fire. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we have two great traditions in Baptist life. And I, and I say that they're great because we see those influences going on even to this day. When the convention meets next week, I could point to you leaders who represent the different traditions. The first tradition is the regular Baptist tradition. The tradition of high Calvinism, systematic belief in the sovereignty of God that people are saved only because he chooses them to be saved. And, and they emphasize God's part, his grace. And they're the regular Baptists. They're represented by the First Baptist Church of Charleston. Because a group of Baptists in the late seven, um, 1600s had migrated from Maine, Kittery, Maine, down to Charleston, had started a church. The first uh, the Baptist Church of Charleston was the first Baptist church in the South. And they were regular Baptists. That's who they were. They settled on the coastal plains. They represent order. Urban areas. They were urbane, they were sophisticated, they had orderly, formal worship, and an emphasis on education. The regular Baptists also emphasized paid ministry. I'm glad we have that tradition. They were strongly Calvinistic. They adhered to the Philadelphia Confession, which was a, a group of beliefs that were written down by the Association of Baptists in Philadelphia, which, by the way, was the only grouping of Baptists in the country at the time. And so even if you were in Charleston, South Carolina, you belong to the Philadelphia Association. Uh, they opposed ministerial roles for women. And their ecclesiology, the way they did church, emphasized discipline and associations, churches coming together and working together. Regular Baptists, First Baptist Church Charleston in the South, represent order. From 1740 the time of the First Great Awakening, to 1790, over that 50-year period. Do you know how many churches they started in the South? Ten. Fifty years, ten churches. 
when I tell you that if we had not had another kind of Baptist show up, that we wouldn't be here tonight? I'm not kidding. Did they believe the Bible? Yes. Did they believe in salvation by grace through faith? Yes. Did they believe that you need to make a personal decision? Yes. Did they believe in believer's baptism, that you have to be old enough to make your own decision before you can be baptized? Yes, they believed all those things. But they weren't evangelizing, and they weren't starting new churches. In about 1745, on one of his trips through, it was on his second tour, third tour through the colonies, George Whitfield preached in a place called Windsor, Connecticut. It was 12 miles from Tolan, Connecticut, where there was a man named Shubel Stearns. Shubel Stearns had been baptized as a baby in a congregational church. He probably heard Stearns, uh, heard Whitfield. But at some point, he made a profession of faith of his own. And he was no longer a congregationalist in the, in the regular sense. He became a separate congregation. He believed in conversion, uh, passionate preaching and teaching. About five years after that, he, he actually began pastoring this separate Baptist church. The group of them became dissatisfied and they realized, you know, we really have a problem with infant baptism. The more we think about what's happened to us and the way our lives have been changed, baptism should follow our faith. And so we don't believe in infant baptism anymore. We believe in adult or believer's baptism. And so he goes a few miles away and he meets with a Baptist named Wait Palmer. And Palmer talks to him about what Baptists believe. And Shubel Stearns leads that group of people out of the separate Congregationalist Church and they become a separate Baptist church, a whole new kind of Baptist. They're not the only separate Baptist church in New England, but they're one of them. And then the story really begins to pick up because he and a group of about a dozen people pick up and they move to Virginia. They believe God's calling them to evangelize people on the frontier. While they're in Virginia, people are getting saved, lives are being changed, and, and the regular Baptists in the area of Virginia where they were, they start complaining. They said, these people are causing problems. They are emotional. They're loud. They're embarrassing. And so the Philadelphia Association sent a man down to investigate what was going on in Virginia with Shubel Stearns, his brother-in-law, Daniel Marshall, and, and these crazy Baptist people, these separate Baptist people. The guy that investigated him said he wished he had if he had such warm-hearted Christians in his own church, he would not take gold for them. He was so impressed with the supernatural warmth and heat. And that's how he talked about it, that he experienced with those people. Stearns had a vision. He felt led of God. He went down to a place called Sandy Creek, North Carolina. Within three years, they went from 12 people to 600 people. They baptized 900 and had started three churches. One of the men that came to faith in Christ was a man named Samuel Harris. When Samuel Harris got saved, and this was, this was common, when he got saved, he fell down on his face. He was not unconscious, but he was in some kind of a other place as he encountered the presence of God and the grace of God in his life. Colonel Harris was dignified. He came from a, a, he was a gentleman. He came from a cultured background. He had a great education, and he met God. He became what was called the Apostle of Virginia, and Baptist churches all over Virginia can trace their, their founding to him. He was the one that, that popularized the concept of freedom of religion in Virginia. That John Leland and others 
wanted put into our Bill of Rights came out of that separate Baptist stream. The first churches in South Carolina, the first churches in Georgia were started from the same group of Baptists, separate Baptists. Within a generation, the regular Baptists in 50 years started 10 churches. They started hundreds. The first church in Georgia was Keokee, Georgia. Within just a few decades, they had 11,000 church members in Georgia. Uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, what became Alabama and Mississippi were all the outflow of these Baptist people going out into the frontier and preaching the gospel. And there was fire to it. There was, there was a Holy Spirit thing to it. It's something God was doing. Eventually, the two streams merged. They united. And let me tell you specifically, the separate Baptists, the Sandy Creek tradition, don't represent order. They represent ardor. You know what ardor is? Like passion. They usually settled on the frontier. They, they pioneered the gospel, penetrating places that had never had it. A plain, simple lifestyle. They did have an anti-intellectual bias. They didn't trust people who'd been to school. School messed them up. Took a good preacher and made them a bad preacher. They opposed formal education. They opposed ministerial salaries. I'm glad that didn't stick. In the Sandy Creek tradition, they had a moderate Calvinism. They rejected any written-down confession of faith that you had to subscribe to in order to be part of the church. They allowed speaking roles for women. Their, their way they did church emphasized independence, but yet they formed strong associations or groupings of churches. In their ordinances, how many ordinances do we have right now at Wynn Baptist Church? How many? Two. What are they? Baptism and Lord's Supper. They had nine they had nine. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the love feast. Well, free-range fellowship comes close. The laying on of hands. They, after you were baptized, they would lay hands on you and pray that God would fill you with the Spirit. They laid hands on you. They, uh, they had anointing of the sick with oil. When someone was sick, call the elders. They, they prayed for the sick. They had the kiss of charity. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Unless they have a cold. They had to practice the dedication of children. We didn't invent that as a replacement for infant baptism. They believed that when you had a child, you should dedicate that child to the Lord and dedicate yourself as a parent to raising them in the Lord. They practiced foot washing. I'm sort of glad we're not doing that one. And then the right hand of fellowship. And so they had these nine practices that they observed. I want to tell you tonight, and this is where I'm going to stop, you cannot explain who we are, Southern Baptists. And our emphasis on preaching, on evangelism, on teaching the Bible, on revival, you will not find that in any other stream that came into us except through this group, separate Baptists, coming out of the first great awakening. Something new that God did. Something new is he took a group of people who were not Baptists in their heritage and co-mingled them with the existing Baptists. Eventually, the regulars and the separates came together, and they were just one group. And um, not next week, we're going to have the VBS family night. And not the week after that, because we have Father's Day. But in the su Sundays that follow, we're going to talk about and bring it more up to date so that if you stick with it by the end of July, you're going to be one of the most informed Southern Baptists in Arkansas. Not only about where we came from, but who we are today.